0: You're here with Claudia Hertenfelder, the International Student Affairs Commissioner for the SGPS, and we're going to speak to some graduate and professional students here at Queen's University about their research and how it stretches beyond Canadian borders. What are some of the opportunities and challenges this has afforded them? Let's find out. This is Beyond Canada, International Thought and Scholarship. Welcome to The Animal Turn, Maddie. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's super exciting. For folks who are listening, they might not know that we actually live with one another. So I managed to co-opt you to come and uh, speak about your awesome research with me on air, which is really exciting. Uh, So thank you so much for joining me today. In terms of thinking about going beyond Canada, I think that you've gone beyond Canada in a way that no other person I've interviewed has. Could you tell us a little bit about what your master's research was on?
1: Yeah, um, so my master's research was actually studying snow in Antarctica, um, which is definitely beyond Canada. And so the aspect of snow that I was studying is um, how it's been changing as the climate warms.
0: And and how is that different? So like Antarctica is super far. Um, and I think it's very much like you said, beyond Canada, it's like the opposite of Canada. How many people, before we get into your research, just thinking about Antarctica as a place, how many people get to go to Antarctica? Like how accessible is it to folks?
1: So the part of Antarctica that I go to is called McMurdo Station. And during the summertime or the Antarctic summertime, which is usually uh, like November through February, there are about a thousand people at McMurdo Station. And then um, during the winter months, it drops down to only 100 people.
0: Wow, 100 people. So there are 100 people there that are there year round?
1: Uh, Yes, for the most part, yes. Things are a little bit different this year. um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, usually about 100 people.
0: And how many times have you been to Antarctica? Uh,
1: It's been three times now.
0: What? Oh my god, it's like my dream. One day, one day I will go to one of the poles and I will see something uh, incredible. Uh, did you see any animals while you were down there?
1: Yeah, um, so we saw there are loads of penguins, um, some orca whales, some whales that are called minky whales, and then seals are everywhere.
0: Wow, oh, that's so cool. And uh, what were you doing? So this was all tied to your master's research. And you, you're an international student, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, I'm uh, coming from the U.S.
0: And you were doing your master's at uh, Louisiana State University. And what were you doing it on exactly?
1: Um, so I worked with data from weather stations. And then also we have... Um, some monitoring stations that are inside of ice covered lakes. So Antarctica does actually have lakes, um, but they're covered by about four meters of ice. And um, we have a station underneath the ice that measures the amount of sunlight that's able to get through the ice cover and into the water column. And so I was studying how snow accumulates on the surface of the lake ice, and then blocks out the sunlight that gets into the water column below the the lake ice. Um, and sunlight's really important in those lakes for um, primary productivity and the microbial ecosystems that live there.
0: Wow. Wow. And uh, how did you get this under that much ice? How do you get a weather station into that amount of ice?
1: Um, so we first we jiffy drill, which um, if any of the listeners have been ice fishing before, I think a lot of people or a lot of ice fishers use a jiffy drill. Um, So we jiffy drill through most of the ice. And then when we get to the bottom of the ice, usually um, when there's like a half meter left, we have an instrument that um, circulates hot propylene glycol. um, And it's contained, so it's not leaking into the water or anything. But that heats up this metal pipe, which melts through the rest of the ice and um, creates a hole big enough for our sensors to, to get through.
0: Wow, oh, so cool and And you were saying that it's important, so you want to understand how light is penetrating the ice uh, and you said that that's important for understanding microbial life why why is that important uh
1: yeah, so microbial ecosystems um we're studying microbial ecosystems in an extreme environment, and this is um, important for understanding life on other planets. So um, my, the the principal advisor, or, sorry, the primary investigator that I was working under, um, he's working on a few different NASA funded projects to send robots to um, places like Europa and Mars, which Sick. have, uh, yeah that's Um, so cool it is yeah um and so they have that sort of an ice covered uh world if you will for the microbes um and so we're understanding how microbes in the extreme environments on our planet um could relate to possible life on other planets
0: what that's insane so so what you're doing in antarctica is not like I had immediately assumed that it had something to do with climate change but you are concerned with life on other planets yes Yes. (laughs) it's so much more beyond Canada than what I was thinking um so so what did you find uh when you when you looked like what 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 did you find with regards to, so this is so completely out of my comfort zone with regards to research. So my questions might be very like, like open-ended because I don't know much about microbial life and light. So when you looked at them, what did you find?
1: Um, Yeah. So, and there are microbial ecologists that would do a much better job at explaining um, how the ecosystem processes are changing as the, the light within the water column is changing, um, but the the M- McMurdo Dry Valleys are a little bit of a natural laboratory because they are um, they're a polar desert, so they're extremely dry, um, and so we're using that environment to um, yeah understand life on other planets. And the aspect that I'm concerned with is um, is sort of the light side of things and light availability. And how um, when you do when you decrease the amount of radiation that gets into the water column, then photosynthesis decreases. And so there's less of those primary producers um, and less of that kind of biomass. And so um, as more snow builds up on the surface of the of the lake ice and there is less light, it's going to sort of change um, those ecosystem dynamics and change carbon cycling uh, within the ice-covered lakes. Uh, And so while climate change um, contributes to this study because it is affecting how snow falls in the dry valleys and it's affecting the thickness of the lake ice cover um, because as it gets warm, the lake ice cover has been thinning. Um, So climate change sort of contributes to our study, but, but yeah, we're focused a little bit more on On the ecosystem response um, and what that means for life on other planets.
0: That's so cool. Space already just blows my mind. Anyone who's ever been to space or is thinking about other planets, I'm like, and then people that are thinking about life on other planets, it's like, and then you realize that we live on a planet and um, that planet gives us a whole bunch of hints and clues for understanding the universe, uh, which is just absolutely mind boggling. Now, you're interesting in that you're one of the few people I know, actually you're the only person I know who's ever been to Antarctica, and you will soon be doing research on or in the other pole uh, in the Arctic. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, I, yeah, I'm switching poles, um, and I'm also switching sort of what makes my research important. So in Antarctica, um, it was looking for life on other planets. And then now I'll be studying glacier mass changes in um, Arctic Canada for um, sea level rise and Arctic ocean freshening um, as the climate continues to warm. And so that's sort of more, more climate change related. And is the Arctic considered part of Canada? Uh, I would say maybe Canada is considered part of the Arctic.
0: Ooh, mm-hmm. very. Well, so, where, where? Could you explain, like, where is the Arctic? What does the Arctic look like? What kind of territories does it bleed into?
1: Yeah. Um. So it's the I guess the northernmost part of our planet. I'm not actually sure which um latitude starts or sort of defines the southern boundary of the Arctic. I should mm-hmm. look that up and let you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but. Um, yeah, there are loads of different places that are part of the Arctic. So there's Arctic Canada, Greenland is part of the Arctic. Um a lot of the Scandinavian countries are considered part of the Arctic, and then Russia uh, is also part of the Arctic. And I might and, be missing some places, but
0: and how many researchers kind of straddle both poles, do research in both the Arctic and Antarctica?
1: Um, That I'm not actually too sure of. So they have lots of researchers that look at, um, like, global glacier mass changes. And so they would sort of have their hands in both cookie jars, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I'm not actually too, too sure about that.
0: So you're doing glaciers now, and you weren't doing glaciers previously you were looking at a frozen lake so i'm guessing a frozen lake and a glacier are not the same thing
1: no no they're not um so i'll yes i'll be learning a lot of things during my first few years um as a phd student but i my undergrad degree um i looked at glacial retreat in antarctica Um, and so i'm sort of getting back to to glaciers and climate related topics but yeah there are definitely different principles that I'll be applying to um to my my doctoral work mm-hmm. versus my masters but I'll be working with slightly similar data sets um, so still using weather stations in this research but there will be a lot more um, glacier specific surveys
0: wow and you know what's interesting about your story in the in the context of this podcast is you go I guess, beyond Canada, but also international in so many interesting ways. Um, You've looked at or are looking at two different poles. You work in spaces that are known to be very international, right? Uh, It's kind of like the space station where you know that you're going to have many nationalities concentrated in a very specific place. And I'm assuming that being in Antarctica is a little bit like being on the space station where there's a whole bunch of scientists from different places there. Um, And not to mention the findings of your work now in the Arctic really go beyond Canada too. Yes, um, Canada is located in the Arctic, but the warming of the Arctic impacts the globe, right? A part of climate change. So I think your story kind of shows us just how interconnected we are with ice and with frozen worlds, both at a very small molecular scale, but also um, across space and and across nations. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about your work in that kind of international way before, but in thinking about how you are also an international student and doing work that cuts across all of these boundaries what for you has been a real um challenge of doing international research
1: um so i think right now the biggest challenge was that our the field season was canceled um mm. so that was the antarctic and the arctic field seasons and that's just um to protect people to protect the northern communities um And then also to protect the countries that we would fly through to get to Antarctica, like um, New Zealand and Australia. Although there are some people um, that do get to have an Antarctic field season, but they'll be on a boat. So definitely, um, definitely isolated.
0: So Um, when you say protect, you're meaning protect for because of mm COVID-19? Yes. Okay, so field season, so COVID-19 was disruptive because it's beyond your own geography. Um, It kind of stopped your ability to do the research and the work you need to do. Um, So, I mean, it just shows the kind of the linkages that are connected. And you said that you go through New Zealand. Uh, So you're from the US. Did you find getting to Antarctica administratively difficult at all? Like, how does it work with... Like, do you need a visa to go to Antarctica?
1: Yes. So there is a pretty solid system in place now um, for sending U.S. researchers to Antarctica because, um, or just, yeah, or other people that go to Antarctica for other things. Because, like I said, there are um, about a 100, or sorry, about a 1,000 people that go every summer. And so New Zealand is used to handling people as they come through um but yes we do need to get visas and it's a pretty long process just getting to the field
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: so so
0: other than other than um you know having some difficulties with getting access to visas and a global pandemic halting your field research is there any other kind of challenge that comes into play when when doing this kind of international research or is it just uh joys and rainbows?
1: uh no there are some other some other things um so I work with a lot of like electronic equipment um and a lot of it looks really really weird and has special shipping requirements because of the types of batteries that they use um, and some of them have like ten centimeter long prongs so that it stays in the ground and so it's definitely a weird process bringing those types of items through customs, um, especially <laughs> when <laughs> um, especially when you walk up to the, the security line and you have something with, like, a blinking light on it just because that's how the, the manufacturer designed them. And you have to say, no, I promise this is perfectly safe to bring on the plane. I just have to bring it on the plane because of the type of battery it has. Wow. Oh. Um, so we, you, I think, yeah, we turned some heads, but...
0: I'm sure. Do you have to have like a particular permit with you in the airport or do you just have to do a lot of explaining?
1: Uh, both. <laughs> we do a lot of explaining <laughs> um, and we do have to have special, like I think it's a hazardous cargo or a ha- yeah hazardous cargo or some sort of special customs forms. And especially a lot of the equipment is um, tens of thousands of dollars. And so we have to have... Like high-value goods forms and that sort of thing.
0: Wow. I've never had to do any. I've, I've traveled a fair bit, and I've never had to have a hazardous thing with me or a high-value. I imagine those feel like a lot of pressure walking up to security and and having to have those conversations.
1: It is. Um, but sometimes, or at least in my experience, it's they've all been positive, and they're more curious about what we're using these things for and um it turns into a positive conversation where i get to tell them about my research uh but it is yeah it's definitely a a scary thing because it's like what if they don't let you through with this item that you know is perfectly safe but you can't convince them
0: wow has that do you know anyone that that's happened to
1: not off the top of my head i don't think Yeah. Oh,
0: that's good. That's good. Okay. So, what about uh, opportunities? Um, You're meeting a lot of different folks. You are from the US, studying in Canada, and, uh, you know, researching in places that are beyond maybe just Canadian borders. What for you are some of the opportunities of doing this type of uh, international research?
1: Yeah. So, one of them, um, going to Antarctica and going through New Zealand. I think that uh, American and Kiwi researchers work pretty closely together because we're positioned sort of closely together while we're in the field in Antarctica. Um, so I'm, I'm working on a collaborative project now, actually, with one of the Kiwi scientists who I met in the field and then who's been working really closely with my previous advisor um, in the past. So international collaboration um, is definitely a big one. Yeah, that's so cool. And and
0: did you meet each other in Antarctica itself, or did you meet each other in New Zealand?
1: Yeah, I met, I met him in Antarctica, actually.
0: Is he also a grad student?
1: No, he's um he's a well-established scientist now.
0: Oh, very fancy. Yeah, uh, international, do you find that it's challenging at all, uh, you know, interacting with folks of different cultures, or in general, it's, it's proven to be a really fruitful uh, endeavor?
1: Not really, I think smiles go a long way whenever there are other sort of boundaries, but that's just traveling in general, I would say. Like we had, um, at one of the field camps, we had some Korean scientists pop in for a few hours. And so we just offered them food and hot tea and um, neither of us spoke the same language, but um, yeah, but it was still a positive experience.
0: That's so cool. Yeah, I know, I think in some ways, Science uh, seems to flatten some of these differences, like you speak the same language of the ice or whatever it is, uh, which is really awesome. So Maddie, you've said that you've just transitioned into doing your PhDs. Your master's was in Antarctica and your PhD is in the Arctic. Where are you in your PhD um, at the moment?
1: Um, uh, So I have just started, uh, let's see, a few months ago now. Um, So in my first year, and I'm still right now getting a handle on um, exactly what data I'm going to use and what types of analyses I'm going to use and um, what types of mass balance models I'm going to use. So I'm still hammering the details of my methods out um, Mm -hmm. and building up sort of what types of the papers that I'll need to, to read in order to do my best job.
0: So you're in you're in early uh, like early stages of of planning, uh, your project. Is this your project alone?
1: Um, no, it's um, I would say it's a collaborative project, or I'm I'm part of a broader research community. So, um, I'm in the Ice Climate Environment Lab or Ice Lab at Queens, which is led by Dr. Laura Thompson, um, and so I work closely with my lab mates. And then our lab group is part of a broader Go Ice research group, which is also part of the larger ArcticNet research group. Um, Wow. And so there's, yeah, there's a lot of... There are a lot of larger projects um, that my work will be able to contribute to.
0: That's so interesting because I, I come from the the social sciences side of things, and sometimes we we definitely work on broader projects and collaborations. But to have a lab that's part of a bigger lab that's part of a bigger lab is, um, yeah. So it's, it's I mean I guess it's something like a research think tank? Are these think tanks like Go Ice? Is it a think tank or is it all just independent uh, researchers working towards the similar project?
1: Um, I would say it's a little bit of both. So we sort of do our independent research, but then I think it's every year we get together and talk about the progress that we've made in our areas of research. Um, And that's a really great opportunity to to sort of tease out what kinds of how our work contributes to the other person's work um, Mm -hmm. to really push science and that sort of research forward. Cool. And uh, when
0: you're done with everything, will you be called a geographer or will you be called a glaciologist?
1: I've been wondering that myself, actually. Um, I think maybe I'll be both is-
0: I'd definitely go with glaciologist. (laughs) It just sounds so bad. I mean, geographer is pretty cool. But glaciologist just sounds like it should be something on a t shirt. And you should walk around and be like, I'm a glaciologist. Um, Yeah, it's up there with like astronauts or I don't know what's what's another really cool title. Uh,
1: I think astronauts are pretty cool. one.
0: Yeah, that is pretty cool. But glaciologist is is way way up there. So it's kind of neat to be speaking to someone who's right at the beginning of their research because uh, I can maybe put forward and ask you, uh, what are you hoping to achieve? As you look forward right at the beginning of this, you've got your project ahead of you. Is there any other side things that you're hoping when you're done with your PhD, you would have achieved this?
1: Um, aside from research goals and that sort of thing... um. I'm trying to to get involved and uh, become a better science communicator because um, I think that climate change isn't necessarily something that people understand really well, and then there are obviously some people that um, don't believe that it's real. Uh, and I am actually I'm from Louisiana, and um, I actually have a few family members who don't think that climate change is real. Uh, so I guess my, the broader goal would be to, um, figure out how to communicate these ideas better to people because, um, being from Louisiana, we have a really shallow coastline. And so just a little bit of sea level rise is actually a lot of area of land loss. And so, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, in the community where I'm from, that's people don't realize how climate change is going to impact them. Um, and so they keep pumping out greenhouse gases um, and don't have very many green practices and are only doing themselves. I mean, they're doing others harm too, but it's really going to impact them. And so, that's, so I'd like to try to um, communicate those thoughts and ideas and facts so that we can move towards a greener future.
0: Wow, that's a that's a great goal. I mean, I think we could all do better to figure out how to communicate our work more effectively. Uh, Perhaps a way of starting on that journey is maybe telling us how the Arctic uh, is connected to Louisiana. It seems really far away. You're doing research all the way up there. How might uh, what you're studying in the Arctic influence what's going on in Louisiana?
1: Uh, yeah, so that's uh, the short answer is sea level rise. Um, so there are obviously glaciers in the Arctic, um, and whenever those glaciers melt, or even whenever an ice, whenever an uh, an ice sheet calves, and immediately contributes to sea level rise, um, Louisiana feels it. And so mm-hmm. you can even I can remember driving. Uh there's a stretch of interstate that is pretty close to the coast and you can see the trees dying already from where the uh salty gulf waters are encroaching on the soil and it's it's killing the trees that used to be flourishing because it was um more fresh water than salt water.
0: So so what you're saying is is ice dropping into the ocean from the Arctic. So ice that used to be part of a bigger land mass is now breaking away and falling into the oceans and just the mass, the weight of that is driving the ocean water up.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh All right.
1: It it affects Canadian communities as well, or anywhere with shallow coastlines that aren't, um, there are parts of the earth that are still, rebounding from where glaciers used to put a load on them so the glacier was sort of weighing the crust of the earth down and then there's not a glacier there anymore so the the crust is flexing back up um but so
0: does that mean that i'll have like a mountain in my backyard
1: In like (laughs) what does what what does that mean (laughs)
0: that would be
1: very cool um but it's usually it's small changes like centimeter per year rates i'll have to Okay. Make sure that's accurate. So if the
0: ocean were to rise by a centimeter, that's something – like a centimeter seems like nothing at all. Like what is a centimeter here or there? But is it something significant when we're talking about ocean level rise?
1: Yes. Um, Yeah, so that's where you have to sort of think about the – or convert that sort of vertical measurement of sea level rise to an area. Um, And so in places with like a cliff for your shoreline, the centimeter sea level rise doesn't look like a whole lot, right? Because um, you're on a cliff. And so it'll take a lot more to start affecting the people that live up there. But in places with really shallow coastlines just a centimeter of sea level rise um, is a lot of land and so maybe an example of this could be um, places that experience tides and Mm -hmm. so if there's a more shallow coastline when the tide comes up it takes up a whole lot of or a whole lot of land turns into water basically i guess um versus places with with steeper well,
0: well, I gotta say, I think you're well on your journey to communicating effectively. Um, I totally understood what you were saying there, and it made me think, um, what is that imaginary, that that city underground? What is it? It's Atlantis. Mm. So in effect, if we don't look after it, we're soon going to have New York will be Atlantis and Louisiana will be Atlantis B, and we'll have a whole lot of cities underwater. So. Because there are a lot of cities on coastlines, right? So it's a really serious serious matter that you're talking about here. But unfortunately, we're slowly running out of time. Uh, I would have loved to have heard more stories about Antarctica and the Arctic. Uh, As we wind down, though, I always give folks an opportunity to pick a song that'll play us out. What song song did you choose?
1: Uh, Oh, (laughs) so the song that I chose was Ice Ice Baby (laughs) from Vanilla Ice. Classic. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to everyone who has to listen to that at the end. But what are you talking about? Vanilla ice is.
0: Dun, 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 dun. You gotta, you gotta dig vanilla ice. Right. Uh, how often do you play that when you're when you're in these ice worlds? Like, do you guys lean into it?
1: Mm, no, <laughs> I got it. I um, I used to play soccer as a kid, and our team was blue, and so we were the ice. That was our team name and our mascot. And so um, I think that's why I picked that song, because it's just sort of been a theme throughout my life. Wow. Do you think
0: that playing for that soccer team shaped the kind of job you wanted to do?
1: Uh, Probably not. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think it was more of a coincidence. But who knows? Maybe I actually hadn't thought about it until you asked about the song. Hectic. That's
0: so interesting. Well, Maddie, it's been so great having you on uh, the show. I wish you the best of luck as you start planning and working your way through your PhD. And uh, fingers crossed that you'll be able to go up there next field season. Um, and thank you yes, for all yeah, you're doing me. to combat climate change. Yeah, thanks for having me. This
2: was great. I'm on a roll, it's time to go solo Rollin', then my 5.0 Put my rag top down so my hair can blow The girl is on standby, waiting just to say hi Did you stop? No, I just drove, I kept on Pursuing to the next stop I bust 11 left and I'm heading to the next block The block was dead, yo, so I continue to A1A Girls were hot, wearing less than bikinis Rock men love us, driving Lamborghinis Jealous. Jealous, cause I'm out getting mine Shade with the gauge and vanilla with the nine Ready for the chumps on the wall I'm back because i full of eight balls. Gunshots ranged out like a bell. I grabbed my nine, all I heard was shells falling on the concrete real fast. Jumped in my car, slammed on the gas. Bumper to bumper, the avenue's packed. I'm trying to get away before the jack jack Police so on the scene, you know what I mean? They passed me up, could run it all. The dope means if there was a problem, yo, I'll solve it. Check out the hook while my DJ rebossed it. Ice, ice. Ice. Get out of here. Word to your mother.
0: Big thank you to today's guest as well as to all of the staff here at CFRC, with a special thanks to the station manager, Dinah Jansen. The bed music for this podcast is Mafikizolo featuring Uhuru singing Kona. This has been Beyond Canada International Thought and Scholarship.